Well, thank you. Thanks for taking out the time in what I'm sure are very busy lives. It's a great blessing to see you here. Good. We're going to read a few verses from 1 Timothy. And then we'll get into it. Just the opening section of chapter 1 of 1 Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Father, we thank you again for your presence with us. We thank you for friendship. We thank you for comradeship in the gospel. Above all, we thank you for your incredible kindness and favor to us in your Son. And Father, we ask you right now, according to your promise, that if we who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more shall the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So we're asking right now, Father, for the Holy Spirit to rest upon us, to lead us into truth, to do us good for your glory, Father. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much. You know, sometimes you think, if only I could meet with some phenomenal figure. I've just been reading a book about Churchill and the war. And, of course, one thinks of people like Mandela, great, great people. You think, I'd love to just talk to those guys. I'd like to say, you know, what was your secret? Can you sum up what you were after, maybe? Can you just give us a phrase that uh, motivated you, that captivated you? And here in this verse, we get... Uh, Paul, just summing up in a few words, what was his goal? I like uh, the NASB, which is the Bible I read from, uses the word goal, the goal of our instruction. He has a goal. He has a motive. He can sum up what he's after in a simple phrase. And I quite like that because I, you know, I'm a soccer fan, so uh, goals, you need to have goals. I, I support a team called Brighton and Hove Albion, and if they don't get some goals pretty soon, uh, they're going out of the Premier League. So you can play flashy football, not that they do, but if you don't score goals, you're in trouble. And here Paul is saying, look, I have, I have a goal. I have something I'm after through my ministry. I am not simply keeping the wheels turning. I'm not simply keeping this thing on the road. I'm after something. I have an objective in view. And it's very important for us, I think, to have that kind of pragmatic approach. It's very possible to become fairly religious and just keep Christian uh, activity, church life going, and to miss the point. And Paul says, no, no, I have a goal. I have an objective. If I don't score the goals, um, I'm in trouble. You remember when the Lord Jesus uh, discovered a tree? He came to a tree as he was coming to Jerusalem. He looked for the fruit, uh, and he said, there's no fruit on this. Uh, let's cut it down. 
I mean, that sounds absolutely ruthless. You mean, cut it down? Yeah, it's not producing anything. And uh, they said, well, look, at least dig it around. He agreed. We'll dig it around for a year, see what happens. And uh, that whole idea that it should, it should produce something. Paul says the goal of our instruction. We have an objective. We have something to go for. Remember when Ezekiel spoke to the people, God said to Ezekiel, the people listen to you as to one who plays an instrument well or one who sings a love song well. What does that mean? Well, I love, I love jazz. I love all kinds of music. And I can enjoy someone playing an instrument well for just the sake of it. It just sounds great. And preaching could be like that. People can say, well, he's just an outstanding preacher. And oh, that's, the, that's all we're after. Then we've accomplished our goal. Um, we just performed. Or one who sings a love song well. Uh, you know, you get some very good singers of love songs. They, they can touch your heart even, even draw a tear to the eye. But what does that accomplish? How does it get the will of God done? Uh, and it can be. We can just do well. You can even gather a big crowd because our guy is such a good speaker. He performs well. And uh, that's what God said to Ezekiel. They're listening to you like that, that you can do it well. You've got a good show on the road here. And people will come simply because you're doing it well. A friend of mine once went to a, a church called Millmead in England where a guy called David Pawson, who was one of the greatest preachers in the UK at the time, uh, was. And he was there, and he was just leaving after the man had preached. He was very smitten by what he'd heard. And there were two people walking in front of him, and one said to the other, wasn't he great this week? And the other one said, I don't think he was as good as he was last week. And, you know, you've just got that short-term objective. You've got this performance going. And Paul says, no, 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 I've got a goal to my instruction. I'm, I'm after something. I'm not content merely to be uh, praised for uh, what we're actually doing. Right? So Paul has a goal. And then also notice that Paul has uh, a method to obtain his goal. And the method is instruction. The goal of my instruction. We, we want to attain our goal by teaching people, by putting truth into their comprehension, into their understanding. But it's not simply that they may know more Bible information, but in order to accomplish something. Hosea said, my people are destroyed through lack of knowledge. It's having the knowledge that makes the change. Having the knowledge brings about transformation. And it's through instruction that that happens. If I can revert to the football analogy, um, uh, when I was supporting my home team years ago as a boy, I remember they were in a very low division. And uh, all that the people in the crowd used to shout was, kick it up the middle. That was the, that was the height of our, uh, our knowledge of football. Kick it up the middle. And so if the defender had the ball, you kind of hoofed it up to the other end and the, and the, and the forwards would run after it as far as they were able to. And then you did that again, kicked it up the middle. And then we gradually got promoted. And um, actually, Liverpool were one of the first teams to come and play against us. And they had this incredible idea we'd not seen before. They passed the ball to one another. <laughs> it was like revolutionary. We'd not seen that before. And even out of defense, when it was like real panic, they just passed to one another and they thrashed us. Uh, so our introduction to the top division was a thrashing by Liverpool, about six to nil. And uh, they, they had this crazy idea. Pass to the guy with the same color shirt that you're wearing and <laughs> do it methodically and systematically because they've been instructed. It's not just emotion. 
And as preachers, we don't say, do it better. Win more people for Jesus. Are you praying more? Are you full of the Holy Spirit? You see, it's possible for churches to be built on a lot of shouting, a lot of exhortation, a lot of emotion. And Paul says, no, we have a goal. And we have a method to obtain it, which is instruction. It's a sheer joy for me to be here at the weekend and to instruct about being filled with the Spirit, verse by verse by verse. Loads of people got filled with the Spirit because we laid down instruction. Talked about grace. People said, hey, it set me free. Instruction brings people through. We have a, a method, and the method is not just shouting at people. It's not just saying, hey, it's a great thing. It's not even just a big music show. Hey, we've got the best music in town. Clap your hands. Come on, jump higher. Let's sing as though we mean it. Let's lift the roof off. (laughs) All those things can be quite common in the church of God. It's just a lot of, come on, let's do it. Paul says, no, we've got a method. The method is instruction. We're teaching them. We're laying truth into their lives. Truth they can build on. Truth they can put their confidence in. They can see the journey. Jesus said, you will know the truth. The truth will set you free. Knowing truth. We need to see that's the method that God has given us. Paul said, day and night I taught you with tears. I remember for myself when we were in the early stages of the charismatic movement at home, some people were saying those early Christians, they didn't carry a big black book around with them. And they were mocking spending time in the Bible. I said, well, I want you for the Holy Spirit. You know, you don't need a big black book. And of course, they didn't have a big black book. Um, but Paul said, I taught you day and night with tears. I love the story how he taught. And, you know, the boy falls out of the window. And uh, he just raises him from the dead like you do. And, uh, and then it says he continued till morning. Uh, so, you know, there's that insistence on this, t- this truth you need to get hold of. And we need to see that so important that a, a, a church well taught is going to press into what God has. So Paul says, right, you want me, me to sum up? Well, this is my, I have a goal. I have a method to obtain my goal. I'm not just keeping the wheels turning. I'm not just wanting to get an admiration because I'm, I'm good at saying it. I need to get goals. If I don't get the goal, if I don't get what I'm after, what, do I, what did I want to happen as a result of this teaching? Was it just applause for my ability to present it? I wanted this to happen. I wanted that to happen. How was I going to obtain it? Shout at them? Turn them up emotionally? No, instruct. Give them insight. Give them truth. Because it's truth. got terrific power. Truth opens people's eyes. Truth cuts people free. So we have a method to obtain our goal. Okay, so the goal of our instruction. Next thing is to see what he sets out as his goal. He says, the goal of my instruction. And to be honest, when I first saw this, I thought, this seems kind of small. You know, is this your vision statement, Paul? I've heard much more ambitious vision statements than this. You know, I hear visions someday sometimes, and this is what we're after. I th- when I first looked at this, I thought, I don't know, Paul, this sounds a bit kind of lame, really. It doesn't sound like, take the world for Jesus, break out over here, do this and so. I thought, this looks quite a small thing until you really get into it and look at it closely. And then I think, hey, this is absolutely beautiful. 
the goal of our instruction, first of all, is love. All right, love. Now, to be honest, you can find people have, you know, they almost take that for granted, but then they would have actually other things that they have as their goal. Sometimes it's orthodoxy. You know, how do you view a church? Is it orthodox? Is it reformed? Is it clear? Is it, people say, I remember when I was a young pastor, I used to greet people at the door as they came into the church. I just shake their hand as they arrived. I didn't do that for very long, but I did it for a season. And I remember once I was at the door, and we actually had a book, a table near the entrance as well. And I remember one guy came straight past me. He didn't greet me. He went straight to the book table. And he looked at the titles, and he looked around, and he found one, and he opened it, and he went to a certain page, and he walked straight up to me. He said, do you call yourself an evangelical church? So I said, yeah, we do. He said, why have you got this book on your table? And he showed me a line in this book, in this page. I thought, oh, you poor guy. Because <laughs> he's, you know, the goal of my instruction is what? Well, orthodox. That would be his goal. He's already judged us before he got his foot in the place almost. And people can be like that. You know, the goal is the thing, the, pr the priority is. And you can push. I mean, obviously, it's important. I wouldn't argue for truth as I just have. But when you say, well, that's, that's the, that is the ultimate, well, I think Paul's saying, no, I've got something else that's ultimate. The goal of my instruction is love. Sometimes we would say, well, it's orthodoxy, or sometimes the other opposite is radicalism. How radical we are, the things we do, the crazy stuff we do, it's real, fantastic, that's why we are. And, and, and people, honestly, that's their goal, that's how they value. How's it going? You'll find someone will talk about the money, Oh, this has happened. The money's gone up. Or it's the children's work, or it's this, or it's that. And just by conversation, you can find out what is it that thing people really prize? What is their actual motivation? What's the thing they measure at the end? Well, Paul would say, I'm willing to produce a community actually of love. The goal of our instruction is love. And really, you know, that's not far off, is it? When Jesus said this, the great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And that's worked out in the church of God. It's loving one another. It's loving a community. You'll find that um, these beautiful values are not left in abstract in the New Testament. We're not told to be gentle. We're not told to be merciful. We're not told to be, we're told to be forgiving one another, loving one another, bearing with one another, it's not isolated purity. It's doing these things to one another, caring for one another, forgiving one another, praying for one another, encouraging one another. This love is worked out in a community that looks starkly different from the world outside, where there's a distinct lack of love and caring. It's expressed in the church of God, the city of God, this place where God dwells. And so we're wanting to build a community where love is obvious, where people coming in can perceive that. They can see it. They can feel it. They can say, there's something about this people. Paul says, that's my goal. I want to produce a people that are not loving in abstract. They are loving one another. They're doing deeds of love for one another. They're showing kindness to one another. This love is demonstrated. It's there. Paul says in Galatians 5, the whole law is fulfilled. In, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We develop a community 
that is evidently loving. That's Paul's goal. That's what I love to see happen. Now, it's going to take truth. It's going to take orthodox theology. It's going to take all sorts of things to bring us there. But Paul's goal is, that's what I want to produce. A loving, loving community. And then not just loving one another, but loving God. And again, that comes from instruction. That when you understand the, the, the greatness of God's love for us, and it, I sometimes I think when we, we're talking from a worship point of view, I sometimes visit, I go around churches quite a lot, you sometimes see some very bullying worshipers. Can't really sing it, really, come on, let's really. You think, no, 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 teach people about how much God loves them. Just show them his grace, show them his mercy, show him, let love for God come because of that a revelation of how much God loves them. We're not trying to beef something up, but we are trying to see, let them see God loves us. There's a wonderful old hymn by Horatio Bonar. I think he's the brother of Andrew. I don't know if you pronounce it Bonar or Bonar. He's Scottish. You'll know in a few days how you pronounce that in Scotland. But it's, uh, he said in this beautiful old hymn, God is love, tis not by effort thou shalt e'er that love return. Tis the consciousness he loves thee. This shall cause thy heart to burn. It's the revelation he loves us. And, and that takes instruction. That takes teaching. That takes opening up scriptures that melt people's hearts and bring them to know, oh, God, you're amazing. You're amazing. And so we produce love, and then we produce a worshiping community because there's a response to God. It's a response to his delight in us. We start delighting in him. And so Paul says, now that's what I'm after. I want to produce this. I want God, these people love God because he first loved us. He delights in us. And so many people are struggling, so many are under that kind of cloud of condemnation, forgetting that Satan is the accuser of the brothers who accuses us day and night, always trying to beat us up, knock us down. And if I can preach the grace of God, if I can show them, no, you're righteous. God's done it. Jesus paid the price. The gospel of God is enough for you. We can lift their heads, make them love God, not because we force it. Paul says in his uh, wonderful introduction to Romans 1, he says, God's given me grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience that's based on faith. It's not the obedience based on, you better love God. No, it's based on faith. It's based on, hey, I, I really trust him. I'm really confident in him. He's showing his faithfulness to me. So our goal is to produce a response to God. And when you see people beginning to love God, it's so thrilling, isn't it? See people who maybe they just become converted, they're learning a little, and you begin to watch them grow, and you see, hey, they, they're really seeing a love for God. And it's a beautiful goal to have, something that we're after. We might produce that, that there's a loving of God. There's a loving of one another in covenant love, laying down our lives for one another, building that kind of community. I know when I was converted, I would say that the church was never really talked about. It, it just wasn't a big deal. It was all to do with you and God, just an isolated relationship. So to have a personal relationship with God was the big thing. And you have your personal with God. You do your personal devotions. You do your personal evangelism. And then when we began to see the church and love the church, then we find, hey, there's got to be a little this loving, merciful, 
making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, in love, bearing with one another. So we begin to work out this beautiful community thing. That's what God wants. It takes time to do it. We have to learn how to do it. And we give ourselves to one another in it. So loving, loving God, loving one another, then loving the world. Loving the world is just evangelizing, really. It's sharing what you've got. It's having a care for people. It's being one who just passes on. Jesus loved people. Even the guy who resisted him, even the young ruler, said Jesus loved him. And God wants us to have that love for people, a simple affection in our hearts, an extension of our love. We don't only love the brothers. We don't only love the church. We overflow the banks in love beyond our own ranks. And then, of course, obviously, that unique Christian testimony, loving your enemies, loving the unlovable, loving those who've offended, loving those who've hurt you. And really, less than that is missing the goal. And it's something that God can do in our hearts when we love the unlovely and when we forgive. I had the privilege of being at a conference last year uh, where R.T. Kendall was speaking. And uh, he gave what is effectively quite a famous sermon on total forgiveness. He'd been asked to give it, he was told. He told me I, I was asked to give it. But it's a, it's a famous sermon. He's written a book, I think, called Total Forgiveness. And what was amazing to me was there were probably just under 2,000 people there, but they were really zealous Christians in a bright community. But he preached on forgiveness and went, and went right down the line about Joseph and his brothers. You may be familiar with uh, R.T. Kendall's terrific teaching on that. Uh, and that, what really shook me was at the end, he made an invitation. And he did it the way sometimes evangelists do it. You know, raise your hand if there's some way you, you haven't forgiven. And then, when you, then, then he said, no, if you've raised your hand, stand and then come forward. So it's a bit of a cheat. But anyway, he did it. <laughs> and uh, what shook me and surprised me was that in that huge crowd, I mean, literally hundreds, hundreds came forward. I was, I was profoundly shocked at how many dear, terrific Christians. I mean, the worship was wonderful, a sense of God's presence. And yet these kind of secret areas that people just said, okay, okay. And they poured out responding to his fine word, and it's such an important thing that we learn, Lord Jesus, I need to forgive. I need to let go. Because how are we going to build this loving community if we don't... You see, it's just... If we haven't learned to do this, and R.T. gives testimony of how he was profoundly hurt where he was at the church he was serving for several years, very hurt. And he had to, he had to, he had to let go. He had to forgive. And so his own testimony was in the midst of his tremendous sermon and uh, it's such an important thing the goal of our instruction are people that are living generously loving forgiving and forgiving and sometimes it's even in your family forgiving you know parents people have done terrible damage to you, you hear awful stories horrible stories of what happened to people but now there's got to be forgiveness and that cut us free cut us loose so the goal of our instruction has got to invade that area too, to see people cut loose. Otherwise, bitterness grows up. And a root of bitterness 
If you don't obtain grace, a root of bitterness grows up, which spoils many, it says. You know, sometimes you can meet someone, <laughs> maybe quite older in the faith, and say, oh, how are you? And then you wish you'd never asked, because all this stuff comes out. I often say to young people, don't have any time with bitterness. Don't, don't allow it. You've got to be ruthless with bitterness. It's a killer. And so, no, no, so a community where, no, no, there's no bitterness here. That's an amazing thing. So Paul's goal is absolutely beautiful. To create a community where love and kindness and thoughtfulness and gentleness and mercy and forgiving people who've sinned against you and done horrible things to you or said wicked things against you. To be able to let go and walk away. So Paul says, no, that's what I want. I want to see that. And it's the outcome of knowing Jesus' kindness, isn't it? The truth of God can set us free and cut us loose. So very, very important. I mentioned the, as a, we have a guy at home uh, called Toppy Colioso, and he has a church that meets uh, in a cinema. And he had R.T. Kendall preach that sermon in his church. And uh, I, was chatting, I was saying to him, wow, this is amazing, this sermon I heard, and the response to it. He said, oh, he preached it in our church. He said, we recorded it. He said, I show it once every year. I thought, wow. He said, no, I, wanna, I want our people to be very good at this. He said, I show it every year. Once a year, we listen to that. I thought, that's so interesting. As a pastor, he wants to loose his people, see them free, so we can produce a community that are cut free. I hope you're okay. I hope you've got no one you're not holding out against. So important that we're free in there. Okay, so the goal of our instruction is love. And then it says from a pure heart. From a pure heart. Really, you tend to think of purity, you know, you have to climb Everest to get purity. Pure, that's hard. How can you get pure? No, pure just means unmixed, really. It just means unmixed. It doesn't mean something very hard to attain. It's like, you know, someone gave me a glass of water. It's probably pure. It's possible to get something in there. So we want to get it out from a, a pure heart. And, and James says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. It's when you get double-minded, when you get two things in there. Uh, and it does say purify your hearts. Again, it says in 1 John 3, 3, he who has this hope purifies himself. We sometimes want to put that burden on God, don't we? And uh, I used to love that old uh, vineyard song. Purify my heart. I can imagine singing that now. Purify my heart. Imagine God replying, purify yourself. <laughs> it, says, it says, purify yourself. You purify yourself. He that has this hope purifies himself. Now, of course, we're asking God to do his part. Of course, we can sing that from the heart. Lord, do your work. But also, there's, hey, come on, get rid of. As James says, come on, you're double-minded. You've got two values. So from a pure heart, from a pure heart, keep yourself pure. It says in 1 Timothy 5.22. just means loyal, clear, unmixed. We need to teach people that they can understand they can do that. That's reachable. That's something you can do from a pure heart, and then from a good conscience, okay? Just looking through this list one by one, uh, from a good conscience. We don't get a lot of teaching about conscience in the Bible, but it sure is there. And it's something we have to help people with. 
I'm fascinated that Paul stood up in Acts 23 when he was uh, on trial and said, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God to this day. <laughs> That's quite a testimony. I've lived my heart with a perfectly good conscience before God to this day. Well, that doesn't mean he didn't have to sometimes go for cleansing, but it does mean he lived with a pure conscience. And, and that's, that's something that I think, if, we, if you could look at a whole congregation, maybe you've gathered some hundreds of people, and if everyone in that congregation had a pure heart, a freedom from conscience, you'd be having quite a church. Because so often you touch something and people know, oof, there's that area of bad conscience. And Paul says, no, I want to produce this. I want to produce a people who have a good conscience. And we need to teach people how to keep a good conscience. That you, you, don't, you don't reason with conscience. Conscience is intuitive. It kind of says, don't deny it. It just gets like a red light coming on. No, no, no. It, it's not reason. It doesn't reason with you. It doesn't argue its case. It's kind of intuitive. You suddenly feel, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have gone there. It just hits you. It's that conscience works like that. It's intuitive. You suddenly know it's wrong. And you have to learn to obey conscience. Some people don't obey it. They reason with it. They argue with it. They say, well, she does it, and she's a Christian. Or he does it, and he's been Christian longer than me. He's done it, he does it, and he's an elder. And so, although they've felt trouble, instead of trying to deal with it, they reason with it. Or they say, well, I know God's speaking to me about that, but I do turn up early and, and I do sort out the chairs. Or I do help with the PA. I do, I do stuff. In other words, get rid of conscience by being more and more busy. By arguing, I, trying to build up something as an alternative. To, I, know I, I know I feel bad about this, so I do this. Instead of getting it sorted. Instead of, and, and we need to look, be careful, because it says uh, uh, in Timothy... You know, because they didn't keep conscience, they had shipwreck. You know, you sometimes hear, and even these last few years, of even high-profile guys, and suddenly there's a collapse. Suddenly you think, this has happened. You think, how on earth did that happen? And I cannot believe it's coming from um, a life that was walking in purity, then suddenly from walking in purity, suddenly that happened. I think there must be areas where there was conscience trouble, where, you know, you weren't observing it. You weren't taking notice. And Paul says, because they did not observe conscience, they made shipwreck. They made shipwreck. And uh, it's interesting that uh, the captain of the Titanic, he, he knew, he was told there was ice he was told to be careful there was ice. But he was also on his, uh, he was going to retire after that uh, Atlantic crossing. And he was in this magnificent ship. And he could have the record of the speed of crossing the Atlantic. And so he didn't, he didn't take any notice of the warning lights. He made shipwreck. I, I, uh, I was with a friend in, in Italy, a man called Giovanni Trutino, he's a good friend of mine. And he was driving this car, and we're coming up to a red light, and he just drove straight through it. 
And I, I looked at him, and he just looked back at me. He said, it is expressing an opinion. <laughs> so that's how he regarded the red light. It's expressing an opinion. Now, we need to, we need to, hey, look, you don't argue with conscience, you obey it. You don't reason with it. You don't try to do an alternative. You don't pile up lots of other activity. If God's got his finger on something in your life and the people we're trying to serve, we need to teach, no, no, obey conscience. Obey it with a good conscience. And then, beloved, we've got to teach people to have a strong conscience. As the Bible talks about that, having a strong conscience. Because some people have got such a tender conscience that they've never really understood thoroughly what it is to be justified freely as a gift. So, so they, they kind of walk with guilt when they shouldn't. They feel guilty when they haven't. They've, they've confessed their sin and they still feel guilty. And you know, they pray their prayer and they get up off their knees still feeling as bad. And so we've got to teach people to have a, a strong conscience that when a thing is confessed, then we believe the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Otherwise, you confess, and then you walk away feeling just as guilty. And people need to be taught to have a strong conscience. And sometimes that takes, it takes strength of purpose. Because sometimes you, you do something terrible, you say to God, I'm so sorry, and Satan will bombard you. You say, oh, that's easy. So you just say sorry, do you? That's easy. And Satan will try and trick you and say, you need to live away from God for a few days. Don't speak to God about it. He's really angry. Just keep that to yourself for a little while. And maybe when the heat's gone out of it, you can talk to God again. People go through that process. They kind of live in the shadows for a while because they feel guilty. And that's a very dangerous thing to do. Because they think, well, the feeling of guilt will gradually erode and I'll speak to God later. And we need to teach people, no, the blood of Jesus cleanses my conscience. That's what the Bible says. The blood of Jesus cleanses my conscience. So you come back to God immediately. Immediately. Say, Lord, I am so sorry. I said that. I did that. There may be some restitution, but we deal with it. So that like Paul can say, I've served God with a clear conscience. I mean, what a powerful thing that is. To be free. And so to produce this community, Paul says, this is the goal of my instruction. I want to produce a people that love from the heart. They're free to love. They're pure. They're not mixed. They have a good conscience. And then last of all, with a sincere faith. Sincere faith. We just need, incidentally, get, teach people to confess specifically. It's not like you, you pray and then you say, and if there's anything that's offended you, please forgive that as well. We need to kind of name things. Say, Lord, I should never have done that. Be specific, not general. And then, as I say, a sincere faith. A sincere faith. Faith that trusts God's word. Faith that is secure in what God says is true of us. That we live by faith. I think it was Tozer I read when he was uh, teaching on Jesus at Lazarus's tomb. And uh, it says he came to the tomb and they said, uh, you know, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. It's like, you know, they believed in Jesus yesterday. If he'd been here yesterday. And uh, he, he wasn't. 
And Jesus said, well, do you believe? And they said, oh, yeah, he'll be raised at the last day. He will be raised at the last day. And then Jesus knew, I am the resurrection and the life. And he said, we tend to believe in Jesus who maybe saved us once, and we believe that one day we'll go to heaven. And then he said, in the middle, we live as pro-tem atheists. We, we don't live by faith. We don't do much by faith. So even sometimes when you want to teach people to receive the Spirit, and you receive the Spirit by faith, people say, oh, by faith? Do I have to do faith? It's like, when, I don't know, when I did, I did faith last, I did faith when I asked Jesus into my heart. I haven't done much by faith since. But the whole Christian life is meant to be lived by faith. To believe God. And to trust Him. And not to be subject to setbacks and disappointments. To not let go of your confidence. And to encourage people to stand their ground by faith. Not to yield when there's delay and setback and problem. To teach people, no, trust Him. Trust Him during this season of delay. Trust Him when things look bad. That's the, this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Faith is a huge thing. It pleases God. I almost feel like God loves faith disproportionately. He kind of blesses faith. And sometimes I think, why does God bless that? Well, I think there's a lot of faith there. But I thought about this and this. Yeah, but there's a lot of faith there. And God loves faith. I really believe that God loves faith. Because uh, I think that the root of our problem is unbelief. It's the root of the human malaise. Satan came to Adam and Eve and said, you don't want to believe God. He's holding out against you. Why don't you could be as God? You could be as God. You don't have to ask questions. You can make your own choices. That's the, that is the fool. You can be as God. You don't have to trust him. You make the call. You make the decisions. You establish your own morality. And faith is saying, no, I believe God. I believe him about everything. I believe him. And, and we've got to, see, sometimes we preach morality. Come to Jesus and be moral. And the problem is come to Jesus and believe him. Trust him, trust him. And trusting him will affect morality. But we're not calling people to morality. We're calling people to confidence in God. That he can set me free from stuff that I think, how can I ever be free from that? He can do it. He can, res he can rescue me. He can get me out of this. What are we going to do financially? He can provide. A believing community is an amazing group. You know, what about how, how are we going to progress? Are we going to plant out? How are we going to afford for this new building? How are we going to afford for this? Hey, if we haven't taught the people to believe, you're not going to go very far. So we've got to teach people to believe God. Otherwise, all you teach people is to try and be good, especially if somebody else is looking. And to promote faith, to promote confidence in God, to promote, no, God will look after us. Maybe to lead them into things where, hey, you're going to risk some things financially. Well, God will provide. And the excitement of individuals in your church saying, hey, you know, we had this big project. We put in our holiday money. And God did an amazing thing. God did this for us. I've seen that happen again and again and again. And you begin to have a church full of people who've got stories. God did this for us. God did this for us. God provided. God did this. God did that. And so there's a testimony to the faithfulness of God. Not just aren't we being good people. 
I think faith is huge. Faith is something God loves. He delights in our faith. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, faith. So let's teach people. Paul says, that's the goal of my instruction. Faith to stand. Faith to know my sins are forgiven. Faith to know that if I confess, I can walk with God. I can walk back into his presence again with boldness, with a conscience because the blood of Jesus has cleansed me. Faith that I can stand when there's delay. Faith that I can overcome things that I didn't think I could. God can do it. So we, we preach so that people start believing God and trusting him. Trust in a sovereign God, not thrown around by circumstances. Trusting that he will show himself faithful. So here I think our time's gone, if I can see that clock correctly. Paul is saying, this is the goal. I, ha I have a goal. I have an objective. And as I say, when I first look at it, I thought, Paul, this looks like a, such a weak vision statement. It just doesn't sound very impressive. But the more I look at it, I think it's an amazing, amazing vision statement. My goal to produce a community. The goal of our instruction, love. You know, we may be weak in this, weak in that. We may prophesy badly. We may, you know, be short on this, short on that. The goal is love for God. But these people really love God. They really love one another. From a pure heart, it's not a mix. They're not pretending. They're not putting on a mask. From a pure heart, from a good conscience, they've learned to obey conscience. They've learned how it is to get your conscience cleansed. And from a sincere faith, that we're teaching people to believe God. If we see these things happen, we'll see life pouring through amongst the people of God. Lord, we just ask you that you will help us to just emulate this wonderful apostle and his motivations that we, Lord, might see this happen, Lord. Just pray for every church represented here, Father, every community, that we might say, no, this, this characterizes when people come in, they might feel these people are clear-eyed. These people are happy together. These people believe God. Father, help us to produce it. Give us grace to instruct well. Give us goals that we can obtain. Help us to win this for your glory, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. So stay there, Terry. Just uh, giving some thought to how we can steward this moment together and squeeze the marrow out of the bones of life. Um, opening to questions, but if there's something, uh, I'd love you to lead your question with something you want to affirm in what you've heard. I love this fact that uh, we're not just going to get our question answered, we want to respond in community to what is that truth of the gospel that's washing through your life as we've Listen, let's be a people that can affirm uh, what we've been listening to and then follow that up with a question. And so I'm going to uh, start to get the ball rolling. What I've loved is the fact that you've applied this to our hearts. You've taught Paul's intent was to Timothy. It's to the reader. But you've seemed to apply it to community, that thing of a, 
Uh, it's no good just learning how to, you know, love Jesus, me and Jesus, love my local church. We need to do this together in community. I'd love you to describe what a sincere faith would look like in a community, because I would imagine that is incredibly compelling. All this talk about missional this, missional that, but a church that is characterized by a sincere faith. Have a go at that. I think faith is expressed in lots of different settings and situations, but I think it's built from a, the ground floor of trusting God. And I think, to be honest, faith is often discovered in circumstances and then with truth suddenly breaking through and giving you understanding that God can be there for you. And so people need faith in all sorts of different circumstances. And then when they've learned the principle of trusting, I believe they can apply it in all kinds of settings. And I think, I honestly believe that we are meant to, to live in community. I, I think that the modern world, particularly I know that this would be true in England, is built on individualism strongly, and with that, cynicism. Uh, and uh, there's, a lack, there's a lack of corporateness, whereas the church seems to be all about corporateness. It's really in the heart of God to produce a community of people. He wants a people. And uh, I love that verse. In fact, in one of the most frequent uh, recurring statements, I wrote it in the back of my Bible, uh, I think something uh, that, if I can find Alan Stibb's great quote, uh, if I can find it on the back of my Bible, when he said, the chief end of God in the creation of man was to have a people of whom he can say, I am theirs and they are mine. There is no scripture, no phrase, sorry, there is in scripture no phrase more frequent or more fundamental in its disclosure of the divine mind than variations on the declaration, I will be to them a God, they shall be to me a people. God wants a people. He doesn't just want individual. I think the word saint gets so mis, uh, distorted. You know, you read about Saint Teresa or Saint, an isolated dead person uh, who did pretty well. Um, whereas the Bible, saints is always plural, and it's always together, the saints. The, and, and it's a community of people who are living in a particular way. It's not, you know, or you look around the church, oh, she's a real saint, or he's a real saint. But to have a community who are rising to the calling of being saints, called to be saints, called to walk worthy of your calling, chosen as saints, then work it out together. And then you get all these one another verses, and... Uh, uh, you know, over 40 one another verses in the New Testament. And I know I've said this already in Common Ground while I've been here these last two or three weeks, that when I got saved, there was no concept of one another. Uh, when I uh, came into the Baptist church, which was a great Baptist church, wonderful pastor, terrific preacher, beautiful man, but it said on the wall, do not speak to one another. And uh, in, in the sanctuary, you do not speak. I mean, that was the same at Westminster Chapel with Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the greatest preacher of that generation. You could go and hear the great man, but you mustn't talk to anybody. And, uh, I mean, R.T.'s wife, Louise, told me I got told off for speaking to someone in the sanctuary. Uh, so you were not doing any of these one another verses. 
And my pastor used to quote half of a verse frequently. Do not forsake the gathering of yourself together. He used to say that so often. In other words, be here next Sunday. Do not forsake the gathering of yourself together. But he didn't complete the verse, which goes on to say, but encourage one another. And all the more, as you see the day drawing near. But you didn't, we weren't encouraged to encourage one another. You're just encouraged to turn up. Don't forsake the gathering. But the whole point is to encourage one another. Pray for one another. Confess your faults to one another. Admonish one another. You know, don't, there's a lot of negative ones as well. Don't bite one another. There's <laughs> quite a few. Speak the truth to one another in love. And so on. All these one another, it's to produce a community. God wants a people that look totally different. And God wants a people that, Paul says, he said uh, that to the Israelites, he's quoting an Old Testament, God says, uh, you have made me jealous with gods who are no gods. You know, they're bits of tree or whatever. You have made me jealous with gods who are no gods. I will make you jealous, he said to the Jewish people, with a people who are not a people. In other words, he's going to bring a people together who are not a people. They come from here and there, and they've got this accent and that accent and that color and that background, and I'm going to make a people of them. I'm going to make you jealous. God wants a people who look fantastic together. They're just amazing. And it, it would be provocative, Paul says. So he said, I make much of my ministry that they might be provoked. Uh, so that uh, God wants a people. God loves a people. God wants a, a corporate people and believing together about things. One of the greatest joys of my pastoral life when I was leading a church was to lead the church prayer meeting to believe for things to happen. And to, to let, come on, let's believe for this. And to feel people growing in faith to see this thing happen. It was such a privilege. And it's one of the highest callings, I think, of a pastor to lead his people to God in believing prayer and teach them to pray, teach them to see some things happen. I think I learned that from my pastor, my Baptist pastor years earlier, who had a prayer meeting on Saturday night before the Sunday meetings. And uh, he used to say, we'll, pray, we'll fight the battle Saturday night, we'll clear up the result on Sunday. And he used to do a baptismal service pretty regularly, and I never attended a baptismal service when no one responded. I was there for about 11 years. I was never there when a, when a service happened and no one responded. And he fought the battle. He taught us to fight the battle the night before so that when I get up and preach tomorrow, we've won this battle tonight. I, I learned so much from that. I want, I want to pray things through and help people to believe. And so for us, it was about, I think, probably raising money for our building was the big challenge. Can we believe this can happen? And of course, being figures, it's quite measurable. And we saw people rising in faith as we met. We got that figure, we got that figure, then we got that figure. And people were beginning to believe for this and then get caught up in it, in sacrificial giving as well. So we're, we're becoming a believing church. And I, and I think so. It's a, it's a corporate thing. And we can learn from the individual. I love reading about George Mueller or Praying Hyde or one of these great guys. But to get a community that believes together is a huge privilege.